to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome back, Liberty lovers, to our latest edition of Lions of Liberty. Welcome to those listening on Daily Paul Radio, where this show airs every Friday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Welcome to those listening on your iPhones, your iPads, your Androids, or whatever other devices you might use that I don't even know about. Now the market's always coming up with cool new gadgets. Maybe I'll even eventually be able to broadcast this show directly into your brain. Maybe. And you know, the reason I do this show is, well, the same reason I started our website, lionsofliberty.com, with several friends of mine a couple years ago. We strive to advance the ideas of liberty. And much of what we focused on, on this show... By far the most important thing, I believe, are the principles of liberty. You know, without a principled foundation for your ideas, you aren't going to have a consistent philosophy, and that lack of consistency will come back to bite you. You know, if you can't defend a consistent philosophy, you will eventually be called out on your contradictions, so this is very important. At the same time, when you're principled, and you have a philosophy, you get a lot of this reaction. Well, I agree with you in principle, but that's never going to work in real life. Thanks. People will say we need this government, this coercive organization that extracts wealth from everyone to pay for all the things we need, like roads, garbage disposal, all that stuff. And of course, many will take this even further into saying that we need them to provide health care and education and even more space. I mean, you name it. A nice big shed for everybody. No, two. There isn't something people can justify this for. But the general theory that many in our society obviously agree on because we have it is that we need government, this coercive organization, for the greater good, if you will. The problem, of course, is that this greater good often comes at the expense of individual liberty. And it's for this reason that I think it's important for libertarians to always discuss ideas about how societies could actually form absent a coercive government. You know, some people are minarchists, where they just want government out of most of this stuff, but kind of concede that we still need this coercive organization for certain things that are really important, like courts and police, and I think we all agree, maybe the hardened criminals out there don't agree that we need them, but I think most of us agree that we do. Certainly. You know, there are also those who promote anarcho-capitalism. It's kind of a world without government where people own their own property. And, you know, everyone kind of voluntarily can sign on to insurance companies and other organizations that will take care of these services. And my guest today has done extensive work exploring a lot of these concepts of how people in society could function without a coercive government. He is a lecturer in economics at San Jose State University here in California. He's a research fellow at the Independent Institute. He's also the author of several books, including The Soul of Liberty, The Dictionary of Free Market Economics, and a work which we will discuss today, Public Goods and Private Communities, The Market Provision of Social Services. Fred Fulbury, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Thank you. And thanks for coming on. It is certainly great to have you here today. Uh, Mr. Fulvery, I I brought you on to the show today because one of the biggest topics of discussion in libertarian circles 
as well as one of the biggest lines of questioning that we often get from non-libertarians regards kind of how a free society could actually work in practice. You know, how could people get all the services that they need without this sort of overriding coercive agency that we commonly call the government? And you've done a lot of work on this subject with your book, Public Goods and Private Communities, The Market Provision of Social Services. But before we get into the details of that book, I'd like to try to provide kind of an overview of where some of your ideas emerge from. And I believe they largely stem from the concept of Georgism, as well as a term I believe you actually coined yourself, that is geolibertarianism. So could you just provide a brief overview of, you know, what is Georgism, what is geolibertarianism? Yeah, Henry George wrote a book called Progress on Poverty in which um, he traced the origin of poverty to the land tenure system and taxation. And the remedy was the replacement of all taxes with just one tax on land value, a single tax on land value, because taxes damage the economy, and that's well known. Income taxes, sales taxes, value-added taxes, taxes on produced wealth, all inflict damage to the economy. And the one tax that does not damage the economy is a tax on land because it's already here. It's not being produced. It comes from nature and from population. His analysis basically is sound economics. The economists today, such as Milton Friedman, believe that Henry George was correct. Now, the geo in geolibertarianism stands for two things. Geo as in geography, meaning uh, land, and the first three letters of George's last name thus geo-libertarianism. That term is caught on. So that's the aspect of libertarianism, which can be both anarchist and minarchist, but it's a recognition that in a free society, the public revenue would best come from land rent, either by contract or, you know, however it's obtained. If you're a minarchist, it would be just one tax replacing all the other tax. If you're an anarchist, you would have contractual voluntary communities that provide their collective goods, most essentially through the rent of the land served. And uh, in fact, as I had case studies in my book showing that's how many communities actually do it, communities such as condominiums, residential associations, land trusts, and so on. Before we really delve too much into the specifics of your book, I just wanted to find some of these terms here. So and one term that you're obviously basing all this around is the, the idea of public goods. Can you explain what exactly is a public good in economic sense? I think a clearer term would be collective goods. So a collective good is something that several people or a group of people use at the same time and where the use by one person does not diminish the use by another. For example, if you're in a room, if you're in a room and there's lighting, Everybody benefits from the lighting, and one more person entering the room is not going to reduce the lighting that other people receive. So that's an example of a collective good or public good. Now, some economists had a second qualification that the good has to be excludable. In other words, that it's physically impossible to exclude people. But uh, then they're inconsistent because they talk about government providing public goods such as streets and roads. Well, those are excludable. We can keep people from using streets and roads. So I think the, the clearest meaning is uh, collective goods that are used by a group of people where one person's use does not reduce the use by another. And in fact, there are public goods provided by both government and private enterprise. So the word public is confusing because we use the word public for government goods, 
such as you know public schools, and we also use public as pertaining to people in general, like open to the public. So unfortunately, the word public has sometimes it gets confused. People think of public goods as those provided by government. So I think collective goods is the better term. Right, because your definition of public is probably a little different in terms of your book and your work. It's a little different than what most people might think of as public. They might think of you know the public park or the, the public pool or or what have you as a public thing, but you're kind of a little more specific. You're just saying this as anything we collectively use amongst a number of people. Yeah, that could include parks and so on. Right, right. Um, now, let's get into the specifics of how these private communities can come together. We'll get into some actual examples that you've used a little bit later on, but first, just give us the basic overview. How can these private communities be formed, and how do they actually provide public goods to people? Well, they're formed by an entrepreneur, such as a developer, who develops a, a, an area. Sometimes they're founded by people who have a particular intention. For example, the village of Arden in Delaware, which is a chapter in the book, was founded by followers of Henry George, who created a land trust, and they wanted to show in practice how a community can be financed from land rent. So the residents pay rent to the trust. They own their buildings completely, and the, the Government property tax is paid for by the trust so that all the people see is rent, paying rent to the trust and they don't see the property taxes applied to the building. Most condominiums and residential associations were started by developers who not only just create the housing and the things like perhaps streets and parks and recreation, but also the developers create a, an association, condominium association, homeowners association, to govern the location, and then anybody who buys a unit in that community belongs to the association. They are given a document with the master deed and the bylaws and the rules, and they said this is, you know, if you buy a property here, you're going to belong to the association, so they sign it. So that's a key difference between a private or contractual community and a government. So when we move into a city... Nobody gives you anything to sign, right? Whereas if you move into a civic association, you sign on the dotted line. And in fact, as Lysander Spooner pointed out, serious contracts, contracts of important things are signed. And American law recognizes that real estate contracts have to be signed. They can't just be oral. And the signature implies real agreement. Whereas, uh, so just living in a city or state or country doesn't mean you agree to the laws because uh, anywhere else that you move would have laws that you don't like. But uh, just moving into a private community where you sign the agreement, that's an explicit agreement. That's what makes it voluntary. Right, and I think that's like a good thing about that you emphasize with these private communities. They are based on contract, and that's a big difference between what we're calling contract, whereas someone actually sees the rules, they're written on a piece of paper, they sign, they agree to them, as opposed to what a lot of people purport we already have is what's called a social contract. It's kind of what people say, well, if you live here in the United States or you live here in the state of California, by virtue of you living here, you thereby agree to all of the rules that are in place. Uh, and the, the problem with that is, you know, twofold, as you described, I mean, I never agreed to those rules. I never signed anything that's not a contract by any sort of reasonable definition, even the one that the government 
you know, typically um, abides by. And also, I mean, in that case, in this massive democratic system where laws can change at, at, the, at the will of, you know, 51% of the population, you're in that theory, you're agreeing to not only the present laws, but any laws that this group of people might decide upon in the, in, you know, in the indefinite future. So um, I think that's a really important right. thing you, in the difference you describe. Yeah, and another difference is that uh, in government, the government officials have sovereign immunity when they're acting in their official capacity, whereas with a contractual community, the board of directors has no sovereign immunity. If they don't follow the contract, they can be sued. So what would you say to people that, you know, they hear about your idea, you know, about these private communities, and, you know, they think, well, it's kind of interesting, but, you know, Mr. Fulver, I already have my roads. I already have the garbage pickup. You know, we already get this from government. So what is so much better about doing this privately in, in private communities? What's so wrong with the current system? Well, the current system has taxes and subsidies. You're taxed on your wages. You're taxed uh, on any investment income you have. Uh, you're taxed when you buy goods. You pay a sales tax. In Europe, you pay a value-added tax. And these taxes damage the economy. And also, you know, economists recognize, especially in the Austrian school, that a price is not just what you pay for something. The price of a good represents the scarcity and the desire. Right? Uh, Friedrich Hayek recognized uh, that there's a lot of information packed into a price. And so when you tax a good or, or subsidize it, you distort the price structure. You create all kinds of inefficiencies. So... The the road today is uh, paid for by taxes on wages and profits and goods. And if it's a road that's well used, what does that road do? It That road increases the value of the real estate in that area. So the land value and the land rent goes up. And if most of the tax falls on workers or business people, then the landowners who use that road or benefit from it, they get a windfall, they get an implicit subsidy. And that's something a lot of people don't realize, that by taxing wages to provide public goods that affect the territory, you're basically redistributing wealth from workers to landowners. But in a contractual community, the landowner does not get subsidized. The homeowners or retail owners, whoever owns that property, is paying to for the services that protect and serve that their property so there's no subsidy and there's no distortion of taxes so in other words uh, everything gets priced by the market and that creates efficiency in some ways we kind of already see this system in place today we just might not really think of it that way you know we have public we have shopping malls and shopping centers where right. you know one developer yeah. will own the mall and then the stores kind of lease it out mm -hmm. and they provide all sorts of services we also have you know you mentioned hotels you use that example can you kind of describe how hotels yeah. shopping malls that kind of thing are sort of already an yeah. example in practice of this yeah i was influenced by Spencer McCallum who wrote a book called Art of Community back in uh, 1970 this analysis of the private community actually goes back to his grandfather, Spencer Heath. He's the one that originated the concept of the hotel as a, as a community. And if you think of a hotel, it provides services very similar to those of cities or towns. You have transit in the form of elevators and escalators. You have security. You have streets, you know, the equivalent of streets, the corridors or that people walk around or the stairways. 
You have a park in the form of a lobby. You have administration, so that's governance. So all of the, the elements that we see in cities are there in a hotel, but people pay for a room. When you pay for your room, right, they don't charge you for the elevator, right, because that would be inefficient. They want people to have mobility. So there's no charge to use the elevators and escalators in a hotel or, or shopping mall. It's all paid for from your room because that's efficient because the, the cost of one more person in the elevator is practically zero, and that's what they charge. So it's all done very efficiently, and uh, they're in a market competing with other hotels, so they, they need to be efficient. And a condominium association works in a similar way. You pay an association fee based on the value of your condominium, and that has no relationship to you, the income you get from labor or how much you spend on goods or the value of your personal property, right? So that is the prototype of how private communities finance their services in general. Now, one thing you don't leave to the side in your work, you always harp on this, or maybe not harp isn't the word, but you always keep this as part of it is kind of the ethics that are necessary for you know communities like this to succeed. So what what exactly kind of ethical foundation do you think that a population needs to have for, you know, private communities such as this is to prosper? Yeah, well, the ethic for a uh, free society or private communities is basically natural moral law or what I call the universal ethics. So that's one of my books, The Soul of Liberty. I derive a universal ethic, the same ethic that John Locke talked about in his second treatise, although he didn't really uh fully derive it. And that ethic basically tells us that what's morally evil is coercive harm to others. So acts that benefit others, that are welcome benefits, are morally good. Acts that coercively harm others, such as theft or murder or trespass or kidnapping, those are evil. All other acts are neutral. So this universal ethic is basically the ethical foundation of a free society and also private contractual voluntary communities. So people enter that, once you're in a club or community, you may not like everything that's that's going on, but there's two levels of choice, the constitutional level and the operational level. It's like getting married. Getting married is a constitutional choice. You know that once you're married, you're going to have to make some compromises. You can't always have your own way. You're telling me. Or if you join a club, the majority might want to have some activity that you don't particularly like, but you join it because overall you get a benefit. So so that's the voluntary, the voluntariness of a community is freely joining it and also being able to leave if you don't like it. So now once you're in a club, they can have all kinds of rules, right? But it's all voluntary because, you know, you basically agreed to the purpose, you know, and functioning of the club. So the main thing is that it's wrong to coercively harm others. Membership in organizations should be voluntary. And as long as you're not stealing and trespassing on other people's property, then you can have a, a free society. Now, let's say that, as you kind of mentioned there, you join one of these private communities. You know, you agree to all the rules. You agree to the contract. It's all there in writing. But like you referenced there, sometimes you don't like some things that are going on. So what if this private community starts to change? Maybe they change some of the rules in the contract. And I, and I, you said you can sue, obviously, if someone's in, in breach of contract. 
But I mean, what if someone just wants to leave the community? Are they able to easily get out of that contract? I, I guess it really comes back to the principle of secession. Is Would secession be allowed in these cases? Because the person doesn't actually own the land you're on. That's owned by the developer or whoever you know, created this community. But they do own the house. So I mean, are they just in a bind there because they own this house on someone else's land? Or how does that work? Well, there's uh, two ways to leave a community. One way is just to move out. And that would be the case sometimes. Now, and the other way is to secede without moving, just uh, withdraw your property from the jurisdiction of the uh, community. Now, in some cases, it's not practical to have secession, such as if you have a an apartment building that's a condominium association. You can't take... It's not easy to take your unit out of it because right. you have common elements, such as the roof and the walls. So in that case, if you don't like it, you can sell your unit and move out. And that's how that's what you can do in you know, co-ops and other kinds of uh, communities like that. But in a larger community that's more uh, single-family houses or, or businesses, uh, they can allow for secession, and that is uh, if you're unhappy with the community and, and don't want to move out, you could just withdraw your location from the jurisdiction. So in these kinds of communities, like a typical homeowners association with single-family houses, you would have title to land, it's just that the title would include, the deed would say that you're a member of this association. So you could have communities that allow secession and those that don't. If the whole society was libertarian, then everybody would be living in voluntary contractual communities. And uh, when you move in, the rules would either say you can secede or not secede. So, again, that would be a choice. All right, now let's let's get into some of these specific examples that you talked about. You already mentioned uh, the village of Arden. Let's get into a few of the ones that you describe in your book, and I think the big one that everyone's probably already heard of is Walt Disney World. So how did Walt Disney World come about, and then how does that relate to a private community, as you describe? Well, uh, they already had Disneyland in Southern California, but they learned from that experience because Disneyland is surrounded by ugly developments that feed off of uh, Disneyland, the people going there. Walt Disney World is kind of like, not just an amusement park, it's kind of like a mecca that's a mythical place. People make a pilgrimage there at least once in their life, and it's kind of like a like a model city. So they, they wanted a lot of land surrounding the theme park. So the way they got it is that they didn't use any eminent domain. They didn't force anybody to sell. They created dummy corporations and then asked people, you know, if they wanted to sell to the corporation. So they obtained about 90% of the land in that area, spanning two counties, or parts of two counties. But they wanted to be able to develop the Walt Disney World without being harassed by, you know, petty rules and land use laws and building codes. So they went to the Florida State Legislature, and what they said is, we're going to have this great theme park that's going to attract a lot of tourists, but we need a free hand. We need to just do it our own way. So the Florida legislature agreed. They created a district that is controlled by the landowners. And since Disney Company owns 90% of the land, they basically control it. So they had a free hand. So that's how they developed it. And it's a community, well, it's a community because they provide public goods similar to cities. They have garbage collection. They have security. They have uh, transit. You know, all the things that people have in a town, they have there except that it's like a hotel, it's a transient population, people who go there for a few days and then leave. But when you buy a ticket, say for three days there, 
in effect, you're paying to be located there. So in effect, the admission ticket to Walt Disney World is a type of rent you're paying for the use of that space while you're there. But Disney also created a permanent resident community, which is called Celebration, of about 30,000 people. So they actually did have a, a town which they owned, and I think recently people have been able to buy their own properties. It's become more like a residential association recently. How does this work in practice? I mean, I know you said you don't want to be kind of harassed by the normal building codes and all that kind of thing. So do Disney buildings still need to have kind of like safety inspectors? I mean, does OSHA get involved there? I mean, how, I guess, how far does the word private go in that sense? Um, yeah, so they're, they're not subject to county laws like building codes and so on. Of course, I, I presume they still fall under federal laws like OSHA. So you can't escape the federal government. No, you can't. <laughs> but uh, they were able to develop innovative architecture without, you know, having to follow the usual building codes. Right. I imagine Epcot Center, for example, might not be something that would fall under normal building codes and that kind of that's thing. Right. The residential association that's a chapter in the book is Reston in Virginia with a population of around 60,000 people. The developer there needed to change the zoning laws because he wanted to cluster houses, houses that are closer in together than in usual development, and that way he would save land in order to develop, say, parks. And But that wasn't within the zoning code of uh, in Fairfax, where the county that wrestling was in. But he went to the zoning board, and they changed the zoning. He designed it the way he thought it should be done. Then he went to the government and they changed the zoning to allow them to do that. One more thing you mentioned as far as your examples were these private communities in St. Louis, and I believe I've heard you say in the past that currently this is kind of the only place in the country where you can actually go and create these communities still. Is that correct? I mean, what kind of obstacles are there for people that maybe they hear this podcast and they say, hey, this sounds like a good idea. I want to find a developer and go create one of these communities. What kind of obstacles are there to this, and how can people do that today? Yeah, instead of having to build an, a new development in St. Louis, people in a neighborhood can convert their neighborhood into what they call a private place where the people own the streets and the lighting and the things associated with it. And when you own the street, you can have better control, like you can block off one side of the street. And when I visited uh, St. Louis, I actually saw this, uh, like a private street with one end closed off. So. It's a little more inconvenient to get into, but they have much better security, they have more surveillance, and the property values are therefore higher, they have less crime. They've been doing that since the mid-1800s, so you can legally, in a way, secede your street from the city and run it from the neighborhood. Unfortunately, if you have a private neighborhood, you cannot deduct from your taxes what the city saves in not having to provide these services. So it's kind of like a private school where you're allowed to send your child to a private school, but it doesn't reduce the taxes you pay for the government schools. Right, you still got to pay for the public schools. Yeah, if you could deduct from taxes what the expense that the city saved, then there would be a lot more of these private places because you could privatize and then let's say you have to pay a certain amount of taxes for street maintenance and so on. You wouldn't have to pay those taxes because you're doing it yourself. You would have a a more level playing field, whereas now it's the same thing with schools. If you could have a tax credit 
for sending your child to a private school. Yeah, or if you can homeschool and just get a refund or something like yeah, that. Right. Or homes, yeah, then there would be a lot more private schools and more competition in, in schooling. Right, I think nowadays people uh, might say, well, I, I'm paying these taxes anyway. They're already doing it. Why, you know, why, why pay even more to exactly. do with this private you, experiment? You may prefer a private school, but since that costs money and you don't have to pay anything extra for a government school, you send your child to a government school. Same thing with these private communities. So first of all, in St. Louis, you can legally do that. In other cities, you can't, right? If the city would allow people to privatize their neighborhoods, then more of them, more of that would happen. And, and if you could get a tax credit for what you save the government in expenses, then you would have a lot of private communities because people would control their neighborhoods and there'd be less crime. They could have better maintained streets, not as many potholes and so on. So... Right. And I think your average free market friendly person who might be listening right now will be with us to this point in a lot of ways. They'll say, OK, you know, I can see how a private community could provide roads and garbage disposal and all that great stuff. But I think there might be a point where they come to a little bit of a roadblock and that's in the institutions of justice. We'll get out of our current system because obviously in our current system, if a crime is committed in one of these private cities, they're still going to be subject to, you know, the, the normal state, city, federal laws and those systems. But let's kind of think about a, a society absent this coercive government that we have now. How could these private communities form their own institutions of justice? Let's say someone is, you know, caught stealing and they're caught by the private police. Do these institutions, could they form courts and that kind of thing? Or what about if someone is visiting from another community? How would that all work? Well, what I envision is a federation of private communities where you have a group of 20 or 30 communities. They join in and create a higher level association for services that require a greater scope, such as like a freeway instead of the local streets or mosquito control, because the mosquitoes don't know about city boundaries. <laughs> so, so that would be like the second level association. And these associations would in turn associate into a higher level. So you'd have a, this bottom-up, multi-level association structure. Now, you might say, well, but that's also a government. No, it would be the bottom, the basis would still be contractual. It's just that you would have communities contracting with other communities in an association. And then at various levels, they could have courts of law. They could have, you know, police, security, and so on. Some of it more local, some of it more higher level to cover a larger area. So some of the structures we have today, such as courts and laws, could be done by this network of communities. So I know some libertarians call themselves like anarcho-capitalists, and they envision individuals or families contracting with insurance companies, you know, with a bunch of companies. But my vision is more communitarian, where you'd have like a geographically based contractual community, like a residential association joining with others to form a higher level association. So maybe 90% of the people would belong to the, to the whole network because of advantages for mutual aid. And those who don't like it don't have to. A lot of the structures we have now, like courts and, and so on, would remain except in a, a voluntary setting. Sounds like a lot of this is theoretically the way our government are supposed to work. We're supposed to have cities that contract with towns and state governments up to the federal government. The problem is our current system is all based on coercion. Nobody gets to choose that yeah. their city contracts to the state and no state gets to choose that they contract to this higher federal government. What you point out is that people do like to live in communities. 
people think of, you know, libertarianism, they hear things about like anarcho-capitalism, as you mentioned, and they picture, you know, if you're a libertarian, you got to be someone who just wants to live in the woods and not be part of a community. Now, I think that's why your work is really important. It shows, yes, we can build communities, societies that are in many ways very similar to what we have now. But the big difference is they're based on actual contract, not these superfluous, mythical social contracts. And that's one reason I think your work is so important. Fred, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Like I said, you're surely knowledgeable on the subject. And you know, I think it's um, you know really important to explore ways that societies could form absent this coercive government. So I, I thank you for your work. I thank you for coming on the show today. Before we let you go, feel free to take a minute to let everyone out here know how can they follow what you're doing out there, your current writing, and please feel free to plug any current projects you've got going on that you'd like to promote. Yeah, my website is www.foldvary.net. I'm on Facebook. I also write a weekly column for progress.org, www.progress.org. And my back articles I've written since 1997 are all still on the web. So they can read my things there. And uh, also my books are available, Solar Liberty, Public Goods by the Communities. And I, also, I wrote Dictionary of Free Market Economics. These are still available. Go to Amazon or other booksellers to find those. Fred, thanks for coming on the show. Um, take care and keep up the great work. Thanks. Okay, you're welcome. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. We'll be back after a little break. A new UN report is condemning the use of drone strikes around the world and demanding accountability. I'm Ben Swan with your Truth in Media Moment, sponsored in part by BenSwan.com. A recently released report by a special reporter on human rights calls upon the United States and other responsible governments to publicly investigate civilian deaths at the hands of unmanned aerial vehicles, also known as drones. The latest report by Ben Emerson examined 30 individual cases in which civilian harm, defined as death, injury, or instances where civilians were put at immediate risk, took place. The cases stem from reports in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, and Gaza. Emerson's report focuses on legal issues surrounding the United States and allies and their decision to bomb sovereign nations in pursuit of terrorists. Specifically, the special reporter questions the legality of a state encroaching on territory of another country with the intent to kill a person. So what can be done? I'll tell you after this. The destruction of constitutional liberties and endless foreign wars. The voice of the people silenced while lawmakers simply enrich themselves and the political class. I'm Ben Swan. It isn't about left versus right. No, the real fight is liberty versus tyranny. At BenSwan.com, we are breaking the left-right paradigm. We know that the American two-party system is broken and that to restore American liberty means to restore your rights as an individual. At BenSwan.com, we cover stories the national media won't touch, from the National Defense Authorization Act to nullification, militarization of police, and crony capitalism. We are not afraid to stand up for the rights of the people. We are the face of new media. BenSwan.com, where humanity is greater than politics. A United Nations special report on drone strikes is calling for states involved in at least 30 strikes to publicly investigate and explain them. The special reporter also recommends that the states whose territories were under attack to provide as much information as possible. Ben Emerson's final recommendation is for the Human Rights Council to establish a panel of experts to examine the legal issues raised by drones and targeted killings. 
The report states that the governments who initiated the attacks are now legally obligated to explain the deaths. And that may be the biggest issue of all here. The fact that not only are sovereign nations being bombed into an oblivion, but the United States feels no reason to explain what they are doing. What is most disappointing is that it's the United Nations asking for explanation instead of the American people who are being forced to pay for a policy that is nothing less than barbaric. For stories that affect your liberty, you can find me online at benswan.com, where humanity is greater than politics. Agree to disagree. Yeah, it's a radio show we have on thenewamericanmedia.com every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific. Join the show. What do we talk about? Politics, religion, and spirituality. Basically anything you're not supposed to talk about in a bar. <laughs> you're not supposed to have these conversations inside of a bar, but we have them every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific on thenewamericanmedia.com. Join the show, offer your opinion, and let's agree to disagree, but let's have a good conversation. This has been Swan, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Mark Claire. Well, gang, we made it through another great interview with Fred Fulvery on public goods and private communities. We made it through another break from some of my great sponsors and supporters of the show. And we did it all with the express purpose of advancing the ideas of liberty. Now, the work Mr. Foldvery has done and his theories regarding geolibertarianism, public goods, and private communities, this is just one of many possible methods by which individuals in a free society, one absent coercive government, might choose to organize. As I said at the top of the show, and will continue to say each and every week, is that the absolute most important thing is for libertarians to come to a consensus on principles. And the basis of these principles should be individual rights, natural law, if you will. We are all humans. We are all created equal, if you will. Whether you believe we evolved from a primordial ooze, or whether you believe our existence was gifted from a conscious creator, principle remains. Each one of us is human, and no individual human or collection of humans should have greater rights than another. You know, for this reason, the main thing we have to think of when looking at how societies would form in a world absent coercive government, is the principles. Is this consensual? Are you harming someone else? Are you committing a crime against the body or property of another person? As long as the answers to those questions are yes, no, and no, I am fine with any way people might choose to form their own societies. You could have communities like the ones Mr. Fulvery suggests. You could have city-states based on individual private property, as my guest from way back in episode two, Shane Whistler, suggests. You could still have the anarcho-capitalists, people who don't belong to a specific community per se, but simply own their own property and hire out for services in various ways. You could even have communist communities. You could have communes where people pool their resources and divide things, you know, quote-unquote, equally. Maybe not be the place I'd want to live, but that's what's great about a free society. People can try whatever systems they like, as long as they do not force others into them. As I said, the important thing here is principle. Is this done consensually? Are individual rights being respected? And these principles are what we focus on and continue to focus on each and every week here at the Lions of Liberty podcast. And of course, over at our website, lionsofliberty.com. Be sure to stop by every day and check out our features. And as I said, we strive to advance the ideas of liberty daily. 
And we're starting that off every single morning, at least Monday through Friday, with a new feature that we've recently started in the last week or two called The Morning Roar. That's right. Every single morning, Monday to Friday, you can come to lionsofliberty.com and you will find The Morning Roar which is just a little roundup of some stories that, you know, you may not see on CNN. You might not even see in your regular news feed, your social media. We go out and try to find some stories that relate to the ideas of liberty and try to give you, you know, a little bit of our liberty perspective on those stories as well. So be sure to come back and check The Morning Roar. The Morning Roar every single day, Monday to Friday. Of course, every Monday we've got our longest running feature, Mondays with Murray. Murray, Murray where we go back and take a look at a passage, a video, an article by the great libertarian Murray Rothbard, and we take a look at it. We don't always even agree with Murray, but we like to give his perspective and, you know, give our little spin on it, as always. And, of course, every Thursday, you will have a new edition of this show, the Lions of Liberty podcast. You can find it over at our website before it's shot out there to the rest of the world on Daily Paul Radio. And then every single Friday, of course, we have Felony Friday, where our own John Odermatt, you know, enough Jim Beam, and it opened up my mind, and... Goes out and tries to find a story about some sort of felony. There's felonies committed every day, you know. And take a little look, again, at something that you might not see in the mainstream media. Give our liberty take on it. Look at all sorts of outrageous things. Not just things being committed by the police state, but felonies committed by politicians, by average citizens, people that commit crimes that maybe shouldn't be felonies. We take a look at the whole thing. So we've got a lot going on at lionsofliberty.com, so come and check us out regularly. That's in addition to our, all sorts of our regular features, our other contributors, James Miller, Bionic Mosquito, Daryl Walters. We've got all sorts of great guys contributing to our site. And, hey, if you're interested in contributing, yep, drop me an email, mark, M-A-R-C, at lionsofliberty.com. We're not necessarily taking submissions regularly, but you know, I'm always interested in new writers and new people that have maybe a solid base of liberty, perhaps a new perspective. So, you know, feel free to drop me an email if you have an idea about something that you'd like to contribute as well. Until then, please, guys, live long and live free. Thank you.